Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Come on, LifePoint Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Hey, happy Labor Day weekend. We are so excited to have you here. My name is Andrew Garcia, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at LifePoint, and we're stoked. We've got some of the kids in the room. Kids, how you doing? Lies. Y'all are all noisy, and we know it. Don't you love when you want them, you know, to not, when you want them to be quiet, they're, they're not, and then when you, you know, you care, they're just like doing whatever the heck they want and destroying things. Um, we're so excited to have you guys here. Hey, we're entering into a new kind of a, a good series. Um, the fall season is really fun because we have a lot of great sermons lined up. Uh, At the Movies is coming up. How many of you guys are excited for At the Movies? So At the Movies is happening in November, so we're just starting to gear up for that. We want to drop that on you. Um, start getting ready to invite your friends or just start inviting your friends because, like I said, we've got some great series coming up. And if today you're like, man, I, I didn't bring a friend, it's okay. Just bring them next week, send them this podcast, and be like, this is why you guys should come to my church. Uh, because the questions that we're going to be asking throughout this series are tough questions that whether you're a Christian or not, whether you claim Christianity or not, We've all had to, to wrestle with. And so my hope today, as we start this series, Asking for a Friend, is to lower any reservations, any barriers that we might have when it comes to Christ because of Christians. And so as we wrestle with both the spiritual and practical applications throughout this series, what I'm hoping to do is that we can just enter into the conversation with, with an open mind and an open heart, willing to hear and see how these truths might apply to our lives. So to kick us off today, I want to throw up some of the greatest memes that I found on asking for a friend. Are you guys ready for this? I don't think you are. Here we go. Here's the first one. What does it mean if the holy water sizzles when it hits your skin? Asking for a friend. (laughs) That's a good one. That's messed up. The second one. If I don't see anyone I know tonight... Can I wear this outfit again tomorrow? Asking for a friend. Come on, somebody, some of you guys in here, you've done this before. I know you have. Here's the next one. And if you're young, this is funny, but it also is not funny at the same time. How do you really create a sustainable budget? Asking for a friend. Okay, I got a few more. I got a few more. Okay. Does anyone know which page of the Bible explains how to turn water into wine? Asking for a friend. This one's messed up, but I I couldn't help myself. Why is it called beauty sleep when she wakes up looking like a troll? (laughs) Asking for a friend. All right, all right, one more, one more. Here we go. How many lows could a Rob Lowe rob if a Rob Lowe could rob lows? Asking for a friend. That was a good one. You try saying that five times fast, man. Well, well, come on, man. We've all had those moments in our lives when we've wanted to ask a question, but we didn't want to seem stupid or we didn't want to be embarrassed by asking that question. You know, and, when it, and it, it's kind of one of those moments where you're looking around the room and everybody's got those furrowed eyebrows because the teach is going and they're like scribbling real fast because they get it. And you're like, bro, what did I just miss? Like, it didn't connect. The dots didn't work. And so in these moments, we kind of look at our friends and we're like, psst, you're like, what? And you're like, teach. Josh had a question about, right? And you throw them under the bus. Really, I'm the only one who's ever done this. 
You liars. You have. We've all done this, right? Just so we can look like the hero. So, so to kind of solidify my credibility, I turned to the most scholarly resource around to confirm this definition, Urban Dictionary. Here we go. Used when someone knows the questioning is stupid or embarrassing and doesn't want to take the blame for asking such a question. Everyone knows they're really asking for themselves, but they pretend their conscience is clear. <laughs> That's amazing. But here's the truth, right? As rational beings, we all have or ask questions. And this process is so important when it comes to the dialogue concerning faith or religion. And usually, the questions that we have are, are good questions. We should rightfully have questions because we're rational beings. And so I want to set up this series today with a foundational question, a question that many people struggle with when it comes to Christianity. And the question is, what good is Christianity? What good is Christianity? What good is Christianity? In other words, in light of, of what has happened in Christianity, in, in, in the light of what has happened in the church, through the church, for the name, for the fame of God, why should we turn to Christianity? And so to kind of set this up, I, I want to just like use, use this dollar bill here to kind of help make, make sense of this. And, and as you know, this is a dollar. And what's interesting about a dollar is that while this dollar in particular is real, how many of you guys know that there are actually counterfeit dollars all over the place, all around the world? Now here's the question. Why is that? Right? On the surface, they're going to look the same, feel the same, that they can be used in all the same places. But somebody who has studied money can spot a fake a mile away. And because there are real dollars in the world and real dollars have value, there are fake dollars in the world. Because anything with value has power and has influence. And the issue with power and influence is that it can be leveraged for good or for evil. And how I use this dollar is not a reflection of the value of the dollar. It's the reflection of my value of the dollar. See, I can use this dollar for multiple things. And the value of the dollar does not change. But how I use the dollar changes how I see me and how you see me. And what's so interesting is we never question the value of the dollar. We understand the separation between the dollar and me. But when it comes to Christianity, for some reason, we can't seem to separate the church from Christ. And this is the tension that we have to deal with. This is where it begins for us. Because when we consider the Crusades, when you think about the Inquisition and, and the Salem witch trials, when we look at evangelical Christianity in our culture and throughout history, the divisiveness that we see, the, 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 the prejudice that we see, the racism that we see, the, the hypocrisy really makes us wonder what good is Christianity. In light of what has taken place in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, why should we pay attention? Because when we look at all the bloodshed, when we look at all the wars, when we look at all the oppression that has taken place, 
Why Christianity? And so in my research from this question, I came across a forum uh, where Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, he's a super smart guy, fielded some, some questions around this, the idea of the reason of God, which really just set me off in a direction for the content today. And so I just want to tackle this, because the issue with our question is actually the starting point. You see, what we really mean when we ask, what good is Christianity, what we're thinking is if Christ is the answer, then why does or why did the church do fill in the blank? And Christopher Hitchens, this, this English-American co uh, columnist, journalist, and social critic, paints the statement in his book, God is not great like this. He states that re religious faith, as evidenced by ordinary followers, is the single strongest proof that there is no God. What is he saying? He's saying that the behavior of Christians, followers of Christ, have been so irreprehensible over the centuries that they deny the very existence of a God of love portrayed in the Bible. And let's, let's be honest. It's a real tension. This is one of the greatest arguments out there against the truth of Christianity. It's the one argument that has the most merit. So where do we begin when tackling the question? When it comes to Christianity, our starting point should always be Jesus Christ. When it comes to Christianity, our starting point should always be Jesus Christ. And what you find might actually surprise you. You see, Jesus, he didn't come to establish religion. He wasn't interested in the religion of Christianity. Like hogwash, Andrew, phooey. No, no, I, I would challenge you. Go back and look at Scripture. Look at the words that Jesus said. Jesus never said, I have come that you might have more religion. John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus came to establish a relationship on behalf of you and me with God the Father. So that way we could learn to love him and love others. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke 10, 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus was all about human flourishing. Jesus was all about human flourishing. And let's just take a stroll through history to kind of unpack this a little. And let's just start with the world that Jesus was born into. Women. Women were socially and intellectually considered inferior. Now, I don't know how you pull that off because my wife's super smart. And she always has some quick quip to shut me down. It's annoying. But women in his day and age didn't experience the same rights, the same freedoms, the same privileges as men did. Even in Jewish culture specifically, women were not allowed to speak in public. That meant that they couldn't testify in court. It meant that whenever they were out walking about with their husband, they actually had to walk several paces behind him. 
Then Jesus enters the picture and dignity and, and approaches every woman with dignity and respect. And it's revolutionary because no one has done this before. He stood up against the anti-feminist culture of the day, setting a new standard of kindness, of compassion, and respect. And what we see in the early, in the early church is women being included in all levels of leadership, being honored, being supported, widows being taken care of. Jesus gave women freedom and dignity not previously afforded to them. And then, when you, and then you start to look at what the church does after that. In India, history records show that widows would be burned if their husband died. They'd be burned alive on his, on his, on his pyre, his funeral pyre. And it's Christians who were largely responsible for getting that practice banned. When we look at China, the crippling of young girls' feet, it was Christians who helped push the Chinese government to outlaw the practice. So there's no exaggeration that in the history of women, Jesus was the turning point. Now let's consider children. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, children were property. Babies, especially girls, were often just left out to die of exposure. What you would call child abuse today, kids, was normal back then. It was expected back then. But then Jesus steps in, and children become people, and they're given love and care and respect and dignity. And after Jesus left, the church continued after him to oppose all forms of child abuse. They would rescue babies who had been left out to die, and, and most times they would actually adopt them into their own homes and their own families. Education. Education was brought about because of Jesus' teachings. He instructed his followers to teach, laying the groundwork for monasteries and modern education. In our own country, Christians founded the first 106 out of 108 universities. The breakdown of the school system itself, the idea of grade levels, kindergarten, secondary school, universities, colleges, tax-supported public schools, literacy for the masses, education for the deaf and the blind, are all products of Christianity. Hospitals and charities, all born out of Jesus' irrational concern for the poor and for the suffering. In 252 AD, the Christian church in, in Corinth saved the city from a plague by rescuing those who had been dragged out into the streets to die. If you got sick, they didn't know how to cure it, they'd drag you out and they'd leave you there to die. Institution for lepers, monasteries with hospitals attached, monasteries for the sick, for the orphans, for the elderly, all came about, all have roots in the Christian movement. And this might surprise you, but when you study the history of science, the advancements in astronomy, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, were all and were mostly furthered by Christian scientists. Now, why? Because they believed that a rational creator, using rational rules, could they could discover those rational rules using reason and observation. When we turn to slavery, Christians were the first to systemically turn and fight against slavery. 
Slavery in the West was fought by people like William Wilberforce in England and abolitionists who were largely Christian ministers. They fought for the fact that because all men were created equal in the eyes of God, no one had the right to rule another without their consent. The moral foundation for democracy was born through Christianity. The Judeo-Christian worldview supported free will and a representative government. The understanding that man is sinful underscored the need for laws, a system to keep man accountable. And man being governed by the rule of law rather than the authority of man is born from the idea of the Ten Commandments. Need I go on? Throughout Old Testament, throughout the entire Old Testament, we see God speaking to his people over and over and over again through prophets. Doing what? Criticizing them. Their values, their morals, their actions against one another. So what is God doing? He's combating religion. He's combating injustice. Then Jesus steps onto the scene, God in flesh. Jesus gets in the face of the religious leaders of his day, again, doing what? Combating religion, combating injustice. You see, God sees the oppression, the double-mindedness, the moralism, the hypocrisy, the bigotry of humanity. And since the beginning of time, he's been working out a way constantly trying to get to us, to get through our thick skulls. The self-corrective resources within the Bible are so strong that historians like Mark Lilla, an American political scientist and historian, says that it's hard to criticize Christianity more than it criticizes itself. If we turn the pages of our own history back, we see Christians like Martin Luther King Jr., who facing a racist South, looking out across a sea of white believers oppressing his people. And what does he say? He doesn't say less religion. Instead, MLK quotes the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. In other words, what we need is not less religion. What we need is not counterfeit Christianity. What we need is authentic, true Christianity as modeled by Jesus. The response that we need is not to abandon Christianity, but get to, to get back in touch with our roots. And this is so important to understand because the heart of Christianity does not begin with those who claim Christ. It begins with Christ. It begins at the cross, where Jesus, having been bruised, assaulted, broken, beaten, unjustly hanging on a cross, is praying for his enemies and for those who are executing him and have done him wrong. You see, the tension we face is what Jesus came to fix. Humanity, imperfect, evil, broken. Mankind is who God came to save. Yet it's the same broken humanity which he's also asked to represent his perfect love. 
do Christians always get it right? Man, of, of course not. Because we're human. But that doesn't mean that God isn't always working at the head, trying to get to the heart, trying to, trying to bring us back to what embodies his truth and who he is. And just because followers of Jesus get it wrong doesn't mean that Jesus didn't build it right. And we see this all the time with good parents and bad kids. Right? Parents can't be held responsible for the actions of their kids. Like, if you got a bad kid, does that mean that the parent's bad? Of course not. That parent could have been teaching and imparting truth all day long. And the kid makes their own decisions. Yet we understand the separation between the two. So why do we not do that with Christianity? When we approach the question of what good is Christianity, we, look ha we have to look past the church and we have to look at the cross. We have to look at the who, not the what. Jesus is the heart, the church is the tool. Now, I'm sure you've never done this before, but if you've ever used a tool inappropriately, someone or you usually gets hurt. And that same thing is what happens when humans who saw, call themselves Christians get it wrong. The focus should be Christ on the cross, not Christianity through the church. Because when you put the cart before the horse, everything gets out of whack, which is exactly why Christians get it wrong, because they put themselves before Christ. The actions of Christians is proof of God's word. The fact that we're fallen and in need of his Savior. And it doesn't falsify the message of Jesus. It only proves the brokenness of humanity. And a lot of our issues with Christ begin with Christians, not with Jesus. Because a lot of us believe what he said. We're behind what he came to do, the words that he spoke, what he advocated for. We're all about it. It's just what people do with his truth that we struggle with. So, okay, all right, Andrew, I, I hear you out. The actions of the church have less to do with Christianity and it more so reveals exactly the problem that Christ came to solve. Okay, I can get behind that. It's not perfect, but since Jesus stepped on the scene, there's been progress, so what do I do with it now? That's a great question. First, you have to discover Jesus for yourself. You see, as rational beings, you have to approach your faith rationally. You have to ask your questions. You have to seek his truth. And if you don't know where to start, start here. You see, because what separates Christianity from all other religions is that all other religions have prophets that say, I'm a prophet, come to help you find God. But Jesus claimed to be the son of God. I'm God, come to find you. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, that I'm God, come to find you. Which means that if this is true, if Jesus is indeed the Son of God, he is indeed the only way to truth. And that's the fact 
that we have to wrestle with. Each of us, individually, rationally, exploring faith, embracing our doubts, bringing them before God. And, and I know this is where a lot of people want to push back. Again, Christians being so exclusive. No. No. It's just hard to contend with the words of Jesus. And here's, here's the truth to truth. All religions claim some exclusive truth. All religions claim some exclusive truth. But truth is an absolute. So if Jesus, claiming to be the Son of God, was indeed real and walked this earth, then you have to deal with the weight of his words, not mine. And you have to decide what's true. And just, just consider this. If 2,000 years ago, a movement started by a man that has changed the world today as we know it, shouldn't we be at least willing to look at the claim that he makes and the life that he lived and the implication of that life to our life? As a rational being, you can search for the truth and then decide what you believe based on the evidence that you find for yourself. The second thing, be the church. Be the church. Be the church. If you claim Christianity, it begins with you. Let's not be the kind of Christians that sit back content and critique and bash the church. Let's not be content to just complain instead of being advocates for change. If you call yourself a Christian, you have a responsibility to evaluate your life against what the Word of God says. Our, and, and what's so funny is our hearts kind of have this way of hiding from others what we don't want to show them. But what's interesting about the Bible is it reads through the mask. It reads through the mask and it reaches into your heart and it points at your issue and it says, start here, fix this. And as you begin to sit and read the pages and you're open to change, and you invite God into your heart, and you invite God into your head, and you, and you just say, Holy Spirit, help me, help me. The Holy Spirit being God's presence within us. You can walk and step into new life. Like, you can claim Christianity all you want. You can claim to know God as much as you need, but until you enter into a real relationship with Him, you cannot become what He has made you to be. We cannot become who he has made us to be. And how we do it is the third point. We're better together. We're better together as Christians. We need to be plugged in, rooted to a church body, because we cannot flourish. We cannot thrive in faith without being planted. It's not possible. You can try, and you're not going to be healthy because deep relationships, real change happen consistently, slowly, intentionally, building over time, building together. I mean, come on. It takes us more than 20 years to get a kid out of our house. 
What makes you think your faith is any different? It starts somewhere and you have to intentionally build it and point it in a direction. To change the narrative that so many have bought into concerning the church, we have to do better and we have to do better together. So, join a life group. <laughs> you love how we work that in every Sunday. Don't do life alone. Who is keeping you accountable? Who's going to ask you the hard questions? So many people in life want change, but they keep doing the same things, hanging out around the same toxic people, keeping pace with the same habits. You can change alone, but the level of growth and the speed to which you move depends on who's around you. Join the dream team. Serve. I can't explain to you what happens to a heart when you serve someone else. When you take your eyes off you and you decide, I'm going to partner with other people to make a difference, I can't tell you, but something happens. Your heart breaks. Your mind opens up. You see the world in a new way. Be the hands and feet here in this local body. Help us get it right. Partner with the church to make our world a better place, this community a better place. Join us as we try our best to be the best reflection of Jesus that we know how to be. I want to leave you with this, with this final thought. Father Richard Rohr is an American author and friar, and, and I came across this statement, and it just, it just rattled me a little bit. But it said, the contemplative way of looking at something is letting it be what it is until it shows itself in itself as itself without me meddling. The contemplative way of looking at something is letting it be what it is until it shows itself in itself as itself without me meddling. You see, the road to truth always requires separation and a true evaluation of self. Because when we attempt to bring our own perspective, limited and flawed, we begin to change truth to be what we want it to be instead of what it is. Christianity begins at the cross where Jesus went to set our world right. The church is made up of those who desperately need God, and that's why we've chosen to follow Jesus. And he's constantly working on our heads, trying to get it on our hearts, trying to help us take the right steps, move in the right direction. Our response has to be to discover truth for ourselves and then respond by living it out loud. Because if it's true, what do we do with it? And then what will we do about it? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, today we, <laughs> we tackled an interesting question. A question, God, that we have all wrestled with, that what good is Christianity in light of what your church has done? And God, hopefully today somebody has been able to just get, get past maybe some, some biases or, or some assumptions that they've had concerning the church. And God, we would ask that in that space, God, that you've broken down, that you would just put yourself in there. God, help us to see 
you. Help us to look at Jesus Christ on the cross, see what he's done, and search him and experience him for ourselves. Faith has to be owned. Help us to own it. Help us to step into the life that you've created us for. Help us to be the church that you've called us to be. Change us from the inside out. Begin with me. In your name we pray. Amen. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.